Recording in progress. Welcome to the Everything Early Childhood podcast designed for approved providers, nominated supervisors and other childcare leaders. This fun, lighthearted and very serious podcast features weekly episodes on strategy, advice and conversations with fascinating and inspiring people from across our sector. Join the journey and have access to the tools and inspiration you need to create high-performing childcare businesses. Let's get started. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Everything Early Childhood. I am here with my new friend, um, Nicole Tallarico from Tallarico Consulting. Um, She's based in Victoria, and we're super, super excited today to explore child safe standards, and she's doing some amazing work around those, including just publishing her book. So we're really excited to explore those, and who knows where our conversation is going to go today. So welcome, Nicole. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love making new friends. I know. I know, it's so good. Um, And you're right, this is definitely something that excited me when I saw your email pop into my inbox. And um, gorgeous colleague, Holly Ann Martin, who was kind enough to talk to you about the work I've been doing. And, and, you know, most recently, you're right, I have just finished writing a book on asserting a culture of child safety. Mm-hmm. I am waiting for that, you know, final, yes, it's in print, but we're, we, you know, we're in those final parts of the journey. And amazing, so, you know, I am, I am really excited about that because I think a, a, as a profession, the early childhood sector is really passionate about the well-being of children. And so if I can support educators in making their environments as as safe as possible to mitigate some of that um you know you know really un just unforeseen things that we as a sector find really gut-wrenching to actually comprehend so if I can do anything to prevent some of that I'll be really really pleased and thank you thanks for going on that mission and similarly we have had Holly on one of our previous episodes um and like you guys are just fighting you know a big mission and I love it yeah look it is a it's a it's a really huge space so to be able to have a presence in it, mm. I find um, a really powerful space because we need to advocate really fiercely for children. Yeah. They they need us to do that. And I think one of the main parts about, um, you know, the why for the book was because us as a society need to recognise children as citizens. And I think there is so much more that we can and should be doing to better protect them. Um, I think we have a wealth of knowledge in our sector. And so when we, if we actually strengthen the lens in which we, you know, in what we work through in Mm. our own contextual spaces, there, there is so much that we probably don't intentionally overlook but there are gaps. Yeah, wow. And so, you know, and being in Victoria, we have just launched the the latest version of the Child Safe Standards and they are amazing. Um, they are very thorough and comprehensive uh, and they need to be. Mm. So, 
um, I think for us, um, we we need to be really brave and recognise that abuse does happen inside the walls of our services. Yeah. It is not just something that happens when children leave the centres that we are working in. Um, we need to be more diligent in our processes and our systems and our governance. And when we do that, you know, it, initially when that new, when the, when I attended some meetings in regards to the, the changes and the amendments that might occur before those standards were released, you know, they were talking about systemic failures and that's how we should see any loops and holes in our service provision. And initially I thought, oh, wow. Mm. intense but it has to be yeah because really are so many gaps in our service delivery and we we have to be accountable for them and I think that's the only thing that's non-negotiable is children's health and safety so whatever we can do in our services to promote that and enhance that in our services we need to yeah we absolutely do and I think we you know we're we're very very good at trying to minimise harm to children Mm -hmm. if we're going on excursions and outings or we have visitors coming into our environments, we do undertake risk management. We have risk minimisation formats and templates that we utilise quite diligently. But the thing about those is that we are often referring to the likelihood of harm coming to children for physical injury from perhaps falling over. Mm. Or an unexpected incident might occur when we're out and about. Again, physical accidental injury, but not in relation to the likelihood of abuse happening to children. So do you recommend services complete a risk assessment to be proactive in their services in regards to that as well? Yes, absolutely. So I have, it'll be included in the book. I'm pretty sure they'll include that in <laughs> Um, but what I what I do regardless of that is yeah. when I'm working with services, I suggest you relook at your template and your paperwork, your documentation mm-hmm. for your risk minimization and then include in that what I would call um, intense spotlights. Where in the in the whole excursion or the whole experience of a visitor coming in, where might you elevate your supervision? Mm. What means would you put into place? What strategies and tools will you utilise to um, tighten supervision in particular instances? So to give you an example of that, if you take a group regularly down to the local shopping strip, for instance, mm-hmm. which is a common practice for services, and you might have a toilet stop allocated on that journey, what else might you do? Or I think it needs to be really well explained to children as well. Children should be actively part of the risk minimization planning. They have great ideas. And ultimately, we're talking about their safety. So they have a right to be involved in the measures in place to keep them safe. So if you're going to include a toilet stop, what I suggest is make these um, tools really user-friendly. So you might have a combination of documentation, some that might be specifically in language directed at the adults involved in the experience, 
but also you might have um, additional tools such as visuals where children can actually um, see the images of places that they're going to be going to. If you're going to utilise a toilet stop on your outing, then it's really um, quite beneficial to be able to show the children prior to actually getting out there into the street what some what what that toilet block's going to look like. Mm. And yeah, how do you? Because I've I mean so many so many questions just going oh, around no, in my head. No. Um, where to start? Well, my first one is what came up today in a podcast is how do we find that that line? And with services that you work with, how do you find that line between supervision and respecting children's privacy and dignity? Yeah, I think it's a really good question because we want to make sure children are safe and yep. we want to tighten our supervision measures. But in the same token, you are absolutely right. We need to continuously advocate for that. So we have to merge these things together. Mm. I always say that first and foremost, to give children their the, the respect that they deserve, we need to consult them about the suggested strategies mm-hmm. for the visit that you might be taking down, you know, if we could keep referring back to that excursion down to the local supermarket, you know, what 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 might that look like? And if we're going to include aspects of toileting or, you know, if I know some services would, that will go to local sporting complex and swimming pool complexes for sporting and swimming, swimming experiences. Mm-hmm. So what can that look like? And the answer to that is that perhaps we include in our discussion and our templates for risk minimization, the strategies like the key staff members who are permanent educators in a space would be responsible for perhaps standing just inside the the, the toilet block. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think it's important that we utilise a trauma-informed lens. So some children may find confined spaces such as closing the door to a toilet confronting or triggering. And so here's a great example of where we need to be mindful of that and allow children the flexibility to choose. Do I need, do I want the door open or closed? And if that's the case, how can we as educators support that whilst maintaining their privacy? So we're not going to, you know, unless they need our direct support and assistance, Mm. perhaps we could negotiate with children and have some consultation around, well, this, and I I think symbols is also another great strategy. You've got your photo of the toilet block. You've got a, a grid or a map that children can be involved in too. How about we put a heart where the teacher's going to stand? And then if there's three toilets, because we know, because we've taken a photo of the inside and we've been there before, Ideally, we might suggest that children use the far end cubicle if that's available. Or that's a good idea. Mm. Yeah. And maybe we could negotiate members of the public not using particular change rooms or toilets if it's a, a larger facility. And I know that has happened in a number of cases, negotiating single use for the service as they were as they're moving through as they're walking through yeah Yeah. I love that 
And so I went to a service the other day, Nicole, we did a service visit and um, the service had never heard of the child safe standards. So, which I I was, I was a bit surprised. Um, I feel like there's been a lot of publication and a lot of um, emails sent out, but for those services that are just beginning to um, be introduced to those child safe standards, like where should they start? I think the most important thing is to make sure that you, I think as a collective group, as a team, think about all your interactions. Think about all your interactions between children and adults, inclusive of educators. And in that, that includes volunteers or students. Think about all interactions so that you can, what I call audit your spaces and then think about those interactions when you go beyond the actual service itself. Um, and to then complement that auditing process, re-look at what, what commitments you have, what formal commitments do you have for child safety? Do you have a, a charter of children's rights or do you have a commitment statement? The other part of that is when you're talking about strong governance, you need to make sure that you have um, a child safety and wellbeing policy or some services if we, you know, because different states or and territories, um, you know, they are governed by their the sanctions in their in their in their space in their state or territory. You need to be mindful of what those are. And you need to make sure that you're adhering to those and any national regulations as well. So it's really important to be familiar with the governance surrounding the jurisdiction and where where you live and work. Um, And so when you do that, you can adhere to that by making sure you've got a child safe environment policy. Mm -hmm. And if you want to merge them together, this has been... um, uh, uh, definitely a topic of discussion of late. The more we progress with the new standards, the more clarity we're getting around that. So I know the in Victoria, for example, there's an expectation for the Victorian Child Safe Standards that services have a child safety and wellbeing policy, and that's to, you know that that's expected. Um, but if we're looking at national regulations for what policies need to be in place mm-hmm. in the service. Regulation 168 does state that there needs to be a um, child safe environment policy. So even though you in Victoria, your child safety and wellbeing policy may very well be talking naturally, yeah. talking about safe environments. The idea is to really thoroughly comply. Um, it's a good idea to keep the word environment in there if you're merging those two um uh, governance requirements together so, so child safe environment child safe environment and well-being policy yep so um there was some, there, as i said there was some confusion in victoria around that um do we do we keep the child safe environment policy and then create a child safety and well-being policy most services would have the child safe environment policy and would have some level of a child protection policy. But because it is really paramount that that wellbeing is in there and then for the Victorian requirements and the environment wording needs to be in there to adhere to the national requirements, I had some discussions with Ella 
and their, their consultation with Quad. The general consensus is, well, really, if you're going to be merging those two requirements together, it's it's smart and they'd prefer it to be a child safe environment and wellbeing policy. So you've got the word environment in there as well as the child safety and wellbeing. And wellbeing, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And is this, so with our um, educators and our teams already being quite stretched, um, do you think that these child safe standards are things that are already being implemented in practice Um, and it's just things we just have to be more aware of or um, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, I think, again, such a good question. I think if you have already been following the national principles for um, child safe organizations mm-hmm. there are you know there, there's 10 strong principles there and if people have been following them throughout Australia you would already have a number of things in place if you have in your jurisdiction a set of child safe standards like Victoria has you know we we've gone from having you know, a certain number of expectations that have already been in place. We had, you know, seven standards we had to adhere to and now there are 11. So in terms of starting afresh because we've got a new set of standards, no. If you've been really committed to embedding the the initial child safe standards, there'd be no reason why you've got a huge job ahead of you. But for services that haven't been committed to really critically reflecting on their practices and their policies and committing to that ongoing Mm -hmm. assessment of those and reflection on them with all stakeholders, I think there is probably a fair bit of work to be done um, to, to really make sure that children are in the safest space possible. Yeah, and I was so shocked, particularly around the statistics um, that Holly shared um, in regards to child abuse and prevention and how much it's happening in services that we don't even realise between child to child. They're just going through that stage, experimenting. um, And, yeah, so what can services do now, like as a first, like, precaution or proactive approach, um, other than critically reflecting on the child safe standards, what are some examples of what this can look like in practice? I think my biggest advice for anybody in the sector that I'm working with, particularly under these conditions, you know, we are still dealing across the board, you know, it's a global issue of um, really burnt out and stretched capacity for staffing in our sector. So knowing those conditions that we're working in, but regardless of that, you need to maintain connection with children. And if you are not actually physically, emotionally, spiritually present in the space, it is really hard to notice triggers or warning signs. Mm -hmm. So my greatest advice is reconnect with the people in the space, reconnect with the children in the space because it's only then when we re-strengthen those relationships that children are going to feel comfortable enough to, you know, and you don't all, and that's probably one of the things when I'm training groups and we're talking about warning signs and triggers, people are quite shocked when the reality is children will, you know, it's, it's not, 
common that children will disclose and verbally disclose abuse. Um, you know, the, the statistics for that are so low. Children don't because majority of the time the abuse is being inflicted on somebody that should have been protecting them that they know well and they trust. So we need to make sure that we in our capacity as educators are connecting with children so that we can pick up on those nonverbal signs Mm. and notice any behavioural changes or um, really listening and noticing to what children are are sharing with us when they are present in the space with us because it's only um through that that we may pick up on something that otherwise in the in the whole busyness of the day and the disjointed disconnection that you know people are feeling at the moment yeah we're all still in a very heightened sense of awareness post lockdowns yeah you know, Still trying to no, find our way. No, <laughs> yeah. Yes, but no one has recovered. No. Um, we are on a, a high sense of alert still. And um, even though we are technically in a heightened sense of alert, uh, I think that means that we're probably not strongly connected to a lot of the children that are in our environments. Mm. And that's on purpose. It just, it, you know, and that's my advice to really rethink your connection. And where do you advise services or what do you advise services to do or even educators and teams with how to connect? Put the pen and the paper and the iPads away. Oh, gosh. Uh, I joke now. It's like there's we talk about the third, you know, we talk about the third teacher yeah. and the third teacher isn't even the, the environment iPad. anymore. It's the iPad. It's so yeah. Honestly, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, that is what I will say. And, it, you know, whether we're looking at child safety or we're trying to facilitate team cohesion or responsive environments, yeah. the answer for all of those subject matters is stop stop experiencing your environment through the lens of a camera yeah. or the screen of an iPad. Yeah. And our biggest argument with the sector right now is like who who said and where did it come from that every single documentation needs photos? Absolutely. Like we created that. We created that and we created that expectation purely to show families that their child is happy and smiling and I feel like it takes away from that um, because we we work so hard to be seen as professionals Uh um, and I feel like that takes away from that trust and respect that the fact that we have to show evidence and proof that their child is smiling every day and happy. And then the time that you're spending uh, apart from that disconnection because you've got a barrier between yourselves and the children and the environment, yeah. apart from that, what is being reproduced is is not rich, high-quality documentation. It's not pedagogical documentation. It's not, you know, there's very limited dialogue around it and it's being um, produced with, you know, really a lot a lack of thought behind it. So, and and that's not because there isn't great ideas and thinking, it's because the sector has taken on board all of these new ideas, as well as that whole concept of a billion photos, 
And, you know, we, we tend to have a bit of a hoarder mentality. We don't get rid of some of the old practices <laughs> so and true. create new ones. It just starts stack, stack, it's stack, correct. stack. Or we hear up the road that they got exceeding for this, so we've got to add, yeah. add, add. But and it's yeah. adding yeah. that people start going, oh, my gosh, my workload. Overload. The workload, you know, I was in a, a, a very respectful discussion on one of the social media groups platforms the other day about it, it doesn't have to be like that. No. You're really looking at our authentic, high-quality practice. You you can do that without a lot of waffle and a lot of pictures. Yeah. Um, so clear, concise. Um, and I think yeah. how you're capturing that child meaningfully, like yes. it's not just one moment in time. It's you don't have to exactly. sit there and write a narrative or a story. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the other conception, like misconception is learning stories. Like uh-huh. every documentation or observation must be a learning story. Like and if it's not, mm. perhaps it's not able to be mentally ticked <laughs> off or, you know, the checklist that you might have. Yeah. You know, we've, re- yeah. we've got to be brave and go back and challenge those. Yes. Because when we are caught up in doing all of that, then, like we said, we lose connection with the children in the space. We're missing the most important, critical, vital signs of growth, learning, development and well-being. And so we have to put those things away. When I'm mentoring a service and, and they're struggling in their environment, in their documentation, in their relationships, they are really finding it difficult to keep a cohesive environment. Um, you know, the, the thing I say is then for the next fortnight, you are going to do nothing but get back in touch with the children and your co-educators. Yeah. And, and that is quality planning. That's quality actioning. That's implementing all the ideas and discussion that you create with children. And then let's worry about reintroducing some meaningful things. But until we do that, mm. children's health and safety is is at risk. Yeah. Yeah. It I think you've got to have is. that solid foundation before then you can start building yeah. upon yeah. things. And Absolutely. even when you get to that point, like, you know, when we talk a lot about exceeding services and things, um, I visit exceeding services that often don't then review those basic practices mm-hmm. um, and they forget. Yeah. Because that's I think true. as a right. sector, we forward think, what can we improve? What can we improve? Yeah. What can we improve? But yeah. not often do we come back to those practices, critically reflect and actually ask ourselves, do, do we need this? Why are we doing it? This is right. The why. Mm. What, who says you have to do this? And if it's no longer serving the purpose that you thought it would, let it go. Mm. Um, and make room. I think it, it's really important that we hold space for children and the and the environment i'm about to go to darwin for the child australia conference um next month Mm. i'm i'm talking on that subject of co-regulation and holding space for children beautiful because this is what's required of us as genuinely responsive profession as genuine responsive professionals and we need to hold space and stop the 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 busyness and the rush and the cycle you know I often refer to it but it's the only way that I feel describes it well enough is you know that my that those mice that go round and round on the wheel yeah we've got to get off it and hold space for the people around us in the environment in us so we can hear what it 
what they are saying to us. A hundred percent. I'm a fan of like rituals. So creating rituals, creating yep. a flow of the day, yep. slowing down because when we actually slow down, it's us going fast, not the children. Right. So, and the children are Absolutely. bouncing off our energy. So uh-huh. if we're rushing around um, and they're seeing that, that's the energy yeah. that they're bouncing off. Children yeah. actually go slow. Absolutely. And so if we're looking at children that are coming from a place of abuse and neglect, Mm. the trauma that is, you know, as we said earlier, all all children who have lived through the past couple of years or, you know, the the impact of the pandemic are are experiencing trauma. When we add additional layers to that from marginalisation and vulnerability, there's added layers of trauma. So when we, we, we need to start approaching our work from a trauma-informed position and um, to, to do that, we have to relook at what behaviours children are telling us. I, I'm finding of late I feel like educators are, you know, screaming out for, for help. I don't know what else to do. We're trying everything. Yeah. It's just that there are so many children presenting with, you know, dysregulation. Yeah. So we've got to start listening to what those behaviours are, are trying to tell us. It's children crying out for, um, for help. Mm-hmm. And when we look at it from that angle, then we 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 can't go in. It's not it's not effective to go in from a disciplinary uh, mindset and punishment. And uh, you know, a rewards and punishment are not what we're looking at here. We're looking at an understanding that the nervous system and the brain has, you know, momentarily got itself out of whack. And we need to support children uniquely and individually to work out ways that is going to help them back to calm. Yeah. And and building those tools in your tool belt to be able to facilitate for that for those individual children yeah. as well. Yes. Yeah. But who's there? Fun. Like who can give people tools? Like so practically, like because a lot of educators are also yeah. screaming out, like as uh-huh. you said, like yeah. who's there? Who can help us? Like we we need help. Um, and you know, you can implement so many things into, you know, years ago my background was I was um, managing a childcare field officer team and ultimately our role was to support educators um, with inclusion for children with additional needs. Mm. Now, a lot of the strategies that we would use are beneficial in all environments for all children because we do live a really busy work, busy lives in a busy world. So moments to calm down throughout the day is something that educators can really benefit from, um, you know, really thinking about and allowing children times to lay down and rest. You know, I'll often say to services when I'm out and about, is there any that somebody could lie down outside oh there's some some seats or there's some tree stumps that no 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 to lie lay down, down. Mm. lay down at a non-designated rest time is often something not factored in but everybody gets tired and has peaks and troughs throughout the day for when their energy you know all, all of us do when our energy levels are higher than others you know, um, you know, we can go and get a cup of coffee to help boost um, our energy or our alertness. But for children to be able to just go and chill out and get back to calm and, and 
often they they need support to do that. We assume, you know, there was so much talk over the last few, you know, many years of children being able to re-regulate. But the reality is the children that we work with, particularly in the naught to six-year-old bracket, don't necessarily have the capacity to re-regulate on their own accord and instigate that on their own accord. So we have to be connected to children to help them hold space for them to so that they know that we're present, they are in a safe space and that we are wanting to help them back to calm because we understand that it, their behaviour at that moment is out of their control. Yeah, and it's so interesting. So everything has come full cycle and at the centre of that is your connection and your relationships with the children. Absolutely, without a doubt. Pen and paper away and absolutely reconnect, be present. And that's how you're going to bring the joy back. If If we've learned anything, joy and happiness is the key to wellbeing. So, and that's why we are in this career is because we actually truly love rich engagement with children. Yeah. Absolutely. And advocating, making a difference, supporting future generations, um, you know, so many beautiful, beautiful reasons. And I think just making a difference in children's lives. And asking them how they believe that they, and how do they want to do that too? You know, I'm a big believer, as I said in the beginning of our discussion today, children are citizens now, not in later years, now. Mm. So, Continuing to consult with them and help them um, to know that they can make a difference and how they could go about starting to do that in what they believe in, you know, whether it be their safety, the environment, um, whatever they're, they're keen to be, you know, really to really step up and champion in. Child safety is a, a brilliant one and a big component of creating a culture of child safety is upstanding, not just being a bystander to really calling out and having the the language and the skills to be able to say, hey, do you know what? That's not okay. And really looking at peer relationships and fostering friendships, that's a big part of wellbeing and cultural safety. So really fundamental knowledge on how we can be as respectful as possible to First Nations people and uh, any other groups that could be in a position where they're marginalised. So I I think that we really need to, to, you know, if we're going to put the the lens away for photos and iPads, reposition that lens with a social justice ethical framework lens and that, that will... Uh, definitely help bring, um, I guess, a, a, allow people to thrive in their environments small. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, like everybody should be included in the environment and should be, um, what's the word, um, represented. Yes, mm. and know that they belong and they're included. And, and what does that look like? We can't just put a, a flag up and expect that's going to ensure people feel safe Mm. we've actually got to consult and ask the questions and communicate um, and and use as many tools as possible to try and make sure that we can provide an environment that you know 
that that other people are saying, yeah, I feel really safe here. Yeah, and an environment, and you know those environments because you walk in and you yeah. don't want to leave. You no. you feel so comfortable and so a part of that environment immediately, right. and you don't want to leave. No, it speaks to you, and you can yeah. tell people have a vested interest in the the you know making sure that space stays ignited yeah and that it, it it's really um it has an energy about it doesn't it yeah we we call it a vibe we don't really know how to describe vibe. it but it's a vibe, vibe. It, <laughs> yeah and it brings out the best in everybody. Yeah. But the actual truth is as well that every single person has a different vibe. So one service for some people, might they might resonate with holy. Um, yeah. And I think that's really important for people to understand that if they don't feel it in one service, find the one that they do feel that in Absolutely. and with. Absolutely. Contextual environments are so unique and you, you have to, you have to have a, a strong presence. And I, I guess when we're talking about what else people can do, you know, people talk about re, reviewing their service philosophy on a regular basis, but do they really? It, it should represent all the passions and, and the, the drive for every individual in that space, um, families, children, staff members, volunteers. It, it should really speak truly to everybody and if it doesn't then we're probably not authentically re revising the philosophy it probably needs a strong redevelopment I would say so we talk a lot about values and what values resonate for for you what resonate values resonate for your community your children so with you talked a lot about involving children in um everything that you can um, as it's a community and we all want to see in the community. Do you have any key questions or anything that you recommend that services can use to involve children in perhaps safety, abuse, neglect, anything in yeah. that space? Uh, yeah, and the biggest one that educators are quite shocked about, again, um, and that's what we want to do, we, we need to get uncomfortable to move forward. Um, we can't stay complacent. We stay complacent when we just stay comfortable. So we have to get uncomfortable. And the one thing I find when I'm working with groups, whether it be online or face-to-face, -face, is that I say um, to them to ask the children what makes them feel unsafe. And they look at me like, what? Because everybody likes to think that their environments are really comforting and safe, right? Mm, mm. The reality is they're not. Mm. And not always. And it might not be even um, something that an adult could even determine uh, the level of un unsafety, uh, feeling unsafe. And, and the prime example I've got is I did say to a, a group um, that I was working with, go back to the children and ask them what feels them, makes them feel safe great but what makes them feel unsafe and she goes okay I'm hoping they don't say anything on that I go no they might mm. and say they probably will anyway she came back because we were this is on an ongoing training group she came back a couple of weeks later and she said Nick you're never gonna I, I was actually I, I didn't think that I would have anybody say they felt unsafe in our environment mm. um if you said I might um, I didn't really believe you. And I said, okay, so what happened? And she said, I asked a little girl, uh, a group, sorry, um, what makes them feel unsafe? And she said, a, a little girl said, I feel unsafe when the yoga teacher arrives and she comes in to the space and 
you turn your back and go and get our friends outside. Oh, that's she didn't want to be yeah. left alone with the new yeah, yoga teacher that, or the visitor to the... Not, not because the yoga teacher had done anything to her. Yeah. From, you know, that that wasn't the issue. It was the body language of the teacher right. that made the child feel unsafe. So it's really important that we ask children these questions because she said to me, she goes, you know what, Nick? I do do that. I do turn my back. I, I never include the specialist teachers in ratio. I'm Yes, I momentarily might walk towards the door, but I do turn my back. Yeah. Because it was such an easy fix because now I ask one of the other children to go and gather anybody that wants to come and I stay there. Mm. So important oh. to ask what makes you feel unsafe. Imagine that difference to that child. Oh. Well, in fact... When we're talking about championing children's ideas, mm. another child in that same group actually said, well, why don't we make it a rule that when the visitor comes, they can knock and put their head in and we ask them to wait outside until we come and tell them we're ready. Wow. I know. Wow. Isn't it so, amazing? Like kids are just amazing. Like oh, they just come yeah. up with so many like awesome ideas and I just wish that more people would like take the time to ask the questions and listen to what they have to contribute. Because they they have the, the greatest insight and the greatest of ideas. Yeah, yeah. Better than us. Like we, we just had a loose parts discussion and like what they can create and that creativity and like is incredible, like stuff we wouldn't even think of. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, on that child, like the safe environment and things like we think it's safe, it's safe for us and we right. feel safe. But yeah. if we don't take the time to ask the children, how do we even know that they feel safe? Exactly. Yeah. So it's really, you know, this consultation is, you know, so important when it comes to this and making sure that that we are being flexible enough and having multiple tools to try and communicate with people, verbal, nonverbal, um, you know, visuals, more simplified language. I think that's probably another component of asserting a culture of child safety is that you need to make sure that when you are writing and reviewing policies and procedures that, you know, really are, have a look at whether or not they're actually meeting the needs of your immediate community or perhaps future communities. Is there, uh, you know, gender-biased language in there? Is there a, a a reference to the commitment to the cultural safety of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children? You know, really thinking about how inclusive your language is uh, and whether or not you need to have more simplified versions. I know many organisations have a more simplified version of key governing documents like a code of conduct because that's a a huge component of being a child safe service is that everybody needs to know what's acceptable, what behaviours we expect, inclusive of volunteers and visitors. But what a lot of people don't realise is the code of conduct also needs to include what is unacceptable. So what behaviours are not going to be tolerated and what will be the the, the the repercussions and the circumstances that arise as a result of breaching that code of conduct. So, mm. you know, will it be instant dismissal from the service as well as reporting to authorities? It, it's really clear that everybody understands 
that information. So having them translated in different languages or, as I said earlier, simplified versions, visual versions, audio versions is another way. Yeah. Able to effectively communicate, but we really need to be rethinking how um, how well are our governing documents being communicated. And the other thing we've noticed around the code of conduct is we had an incident in a service with a family member, and um, what we realised, and it was the safety of our team that was at risk. Um, and what we realized was that all of our policies and procedures were about the children and about our team, but none of our documentation was about the families and their code of conduct when they step foot right. into the service. And this is a big part. Uh, you're absolutely right. And sadly, it, it it is a common issue that services face. There needs to be um, a very clear understanding about how you need to conduct yourself when you are at a, a, a affiliated with an organisation, whether it be a, in physically at the space or online. Mm-hmm. So online environments are a huge part of our Victorian new child safe standards. Interesting. And yeah, and it also there also needs to be um, very clear and explicit that racism is not tolerated. Um, and that are there clear be- definitions with what racism is classified as? There should be. In yes, the code there should of be. Yeah. And I um, often will talk through with services that unacceptable behaviours may also be categorised general unacceptable behaviours. Um, and you might define different areas, you know, unacceptable behaviours in relation to um, sexual abuse, unacceptable behaviours in relation to online environments. So you might um, you might categorise some of those. And same for, for racism, you know, what is, you know, racism, and I always say, you know, racism needs to be explicit that the service will not tolerate any form of racism and what that would look like and what um, what we need. The service also needs to be very clear about anti-boiling and that it will not accept discrimination in any way, shape or form. And that's to protect all stakeholders, yeah. family, staff members. Yeah. Um, potential families. I think that's also a big thing that we need to be thinking about future families and if they arrive at the service or are are undertaking a a, a prospective parent tour, do we include these key non-negotiables? And we should. And it needs child safety and... um, and anti-racist behaviour needs to be included in all facets of our service delivery, which is our HR stuff as well. So, um, you know, inclusion, transitioning in, um, job advertisements, interviews, tours, it all 
needs to but, include those non-negotiables. Oh, a hundred percent agree. But when it comes to common sense, because um, often that's what it comes back to, it's not so common. So where do people find, or where can people find out more information if it doesn't come naturally for yep. you know gender bias, culture, racism? Yep. Like, where can they access more information that they can implement into their services, and yeah, what's appropriate and not? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, to make sure that you're, if you're going to your um, national bodies Mm -hmm. or, you know, the national bodies, whether it be, um, you know, Early Childhood Australia or Snake um, or, you know, Red Nose, whatever, whatever you're investigating to make sure that you are as up to date as possible, go for the national bodies and who they recommend um, and then you're you're more likely to make sure you're gathering your information from reputable sources. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of information out there on the internet, and people can access pretty much anything. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are, you know, good sources of information that are reputable, high quality ideas and and strategies. So. Um, or that it's true of- or accurate. Yeah, <laughs> it exactly. depends. And isn't that, oh, we had actually just spoke about that the other day, like how social media just reflects what we think really. So, uh, yeah. Mm, yeah. So, with um, those algorithms. In terms, of, in terms of child safety as well, the Commission for Children and Young People in Victoria is great for that. The Human Rights Commission is fantastic for information on the National Principles for Child Safety. They've also got, you know, great tools for reviewing your code of conduct and, you know, looking at how the Building Belonging Toolkit is another great resource yeah. the Human Rights Commission has. And there is, you know, like six folders, I think it is, that you download. There's music and there is um, other information, posters and so much so so much that you can use to help facilitate in your curriculum um, a positive racial identity. And that's what we're really looking at is making sure that we can positively teach children their rights, their rights to body safety, body autonomy, um, uh, you know, as well as um you know, having those tools to understand that um, racism is not okay and that everybody has a right to their own strong identity that need that we need to respect. A hundred percent. And I think we do such a good job of that. Um, we can always do better. Um, oh, but but we do such a great job of that in ECE and in those early years yeah. um, to build up the identity of each individual child. Um, and then it makes me sad that they move on to the education system um, and that they're just forced to conform. But we know that those are the crucial years in those early years. Absolutely. And there is so much work with, you know, rainbow families and there's so many organisations across Australia that can support um you know, support educators to better support families. Mm. Uh, and do you so think important. on that note, do you think it's important that because as a and it wasn't even in an early childhood setting, it was outside in um, a speech pathology setting, but they did an ex- activity and an experience with their team and they actually um, helped them to break down what their unconscious biases were. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. how do yeah, you think 
Do you do that with services or have you yeah, ever done that? I actually that? do. It's interesting Interesting that you should say that. So when I've been training, you know, so many educators and teams in the last few months in the lead up to and post the VIC standards changing, the in the um, the the most common question that's coming back to me via email or phone calls is can you can you help our team because I always say you know you need to make sure that you have that conversation with your team to make sure everybody's on the same page um, they may not be there yet they might be confused about certain things and I find for when we're talking about um, inclusive practices, the greatest unknown for many, many teams has been, I've got a couple of people in our team that are not familiar with what pronouns are, or but we're not sure of the difference between um, sex and gender diversity. And so I'm actually finding that we're really needing to unpack a lot of that information so that people know how to be respectful. Yeah. And a, again, it might not be even something that they um, have experienced in their own life or, uh, you know, in some cases they may have a bias towards certain lifestyles of people, but they need to, to understand that uh, there is a level of professional commitment. Yeah. And so training, further training and more information enables teams to get onto the same page so that they are providing a safe space. Yeah, and it may not be their belief, but I think it comes down to just acceptance for everyone with who they are. Um, And I agree. Like I think that but society has gotten to a point where I think that a lot of people are even nervous to ask thinking that and seek that clarity even if it comes from a place of curiosity and wanting to um, have a better understanding but you know other than Googling it privately to read up on it yourself, I think that people are really nervous to ask those sorts of questions, feeling like they're going to offend someone or um, so, yeah, like I think how do people go about it? Like finding out other than Googling it privately, how can we be more accepting of those questions coming forward? Early Childhood Australia has, I'm a member of the special interest group and, um, we predominantly are a division of the ECA VIC. Um, and, and so we look at how we can advocate and help dialogue conversations around social justice issues. Yeah. So helping, you know, as allies in this, uh, as an ally in this space, um, you know, we're actually a, te- a, a, a panel of colleagues and myself are going to the, um, uh, I've got a memory, a, a mind blank <laughs> Hate now. that. We're going to, I know, Equal Opportunity Conference next year. Yeah. And we are going to try and bring early childhood into this space. I know Sam Newbury has been really, really great in this space. She has just um, written an article for BU and that's part of the educator resources on on their website um, but really looking at 
how do we engage in these conversations with with children in our curriculums is so important. So we really need to um, get more confident in this space. And so that's why we're taking early childhood to that conference because there hasn't been an early childhood representation before. Yeah, um, amazing. So I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about that because I think, um, you know, it all members of society have a right to be represented in our curriculums. And I think we really need to rethink and relook at, you know, all of the messages that we're giving people in our resources, as well as our own engagement personally with people. So so is Sam a good person to follow in regards to like, are they putting out, um, because what I, I mean, what I would like to see is just like, okay, these concepts. And so let's talk about maybe gender, for example, like these concepts, um, what they look like, appropriate terminology, yeah. um, you, you know, and just to see those yeah. examples. with and you can get that when you, when you buy my book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's it called? <laughs> What's it going to be me? called? Do you have a title? Not yet. I'm not yet. Oh, I'm you need to workshop it. You need to put it out. The manuscript is written as asserting a culture of child safety, but we'll see yeah. whether that stays. But there is a big part of that. And and in addition to that, that's not obviously the only resource. And I've got a number of organisations that are happy for me to share some great templates and so forth that will help them to be able to be more inclusive in their organiser, in their environments. But... The Commission for Children and Young People, under their resources tab, mm. obviously accessible to everybody in Australia. It's yeah. not it's privy to Victorian um, educators. But you can actually go on there and download information tip sheets. So there's one for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children yeah. and families, culturally and linguistically diverse um, children with a disability, I'm flagging for the ECA special interest group that we need to have um, a, a rainbow families. Then I'm hoping that they just haven't loaded it up yet. Yeah, and I'm it's coming. That. You can just, it's coming. <laughs> yeah, it needs yeah. to be. So at our next meeting. But again, anyone in Australia can join in these special interest groups. The beauty about having um, online meetings now is that we often have people coming in um, from all different states and territories for those meetings. Peter Fitzpatrick is another really prominent member in um, this space. So there is a number of really key educators in the sector that have um, that are, are really passionate and knowledgeable in the queer space. Where do they find more information? Like where do they find out about the groups? Um, we often post on ECA um, Vic uh, social media posts, emails. Mm -hmm. um, so if people tap into um, the Facebook, we have there's there's often information and updates. Uh, LinkedIn would often have it as well. So um, I, that's probably another you know really really good thing about social media platforms is that you're able to become quite well informed um, and tap into a number of networks and groups that you otherwise might not have been able to. So yeah, that's my advice is to go go to those those key groups on social media and um, that's where you'll get updates for prominent stuff like that. Do you welcome, because um, I, I, I mean, I'm not, it's not a comparison by any means, but it's the only um, 
example I can think of in my head. So you know churches, right? So churches, and let's say you've got Anglican, Catholic, um, you know, and other religions. If you're not part of that religion, I'm not sure that you'd be sort of welcome there. So is a part of these support group or these groups, are you welcome there if you're not a part of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think what happens is that we're going for a, a you know, that real um, socio-cultural approach to collaborating with as many voices as possible for the best outcomes and the greater insight. So, yes, absolutely welcome without a doubt. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Beautiful. I love that. I love that. that. Thanks for sharing. Um, So how, how are you helping services now and how can people find you? People can find me on Facebook. So Talarico Consulting, Early Years Consultant. Instagram is Talarico underscore consulting. Uh, LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, Nicole Tellerico, and otherwise, um, you can see me. Um, I'm doing a number of Eventbrite workshops, so one a month for, you know, we've been doing heaps of overviews, but I'm doing one a month on Child Safe Standards, and I do have people tap into those from different states because ultimately, um, you know, I am proud to say Victoria, I think, are leading the way when it comes to reform in this space. And so the ideas that you get are only going to make services better and there's no reason why you can't adopt these ideas into your practice. So I do definitely get people joining from other states and territories, not just Victoria. So that's on Eventbrite, but I'll always advertise on on my social media as well. And otherwise, you're going to be able to see me if you're going around the country in different um, states for conferences. I'll be at Child Australia Conference next month in Darwin. And what else have we got happening? Um, I'm going to be doing some webinars for Prosper um, and the Australian Graduates for Early Childhood Studies. I'm a reconciliation ambassador for them. And so we we meet regularly for um, for meetings um, and otherwise you will see me at Inspire the Smartest Lottery Conference I'm presenting at that next March so awesome you'll see me around <laughs> we'll see you around I love that I love that well thank you so much is there any last words you want to leave to our listeners yes please connect and if you're not sure reach out you can only ever do good from you know from reaching out and, you know, you're better off to do that because you might just be saving a child's life. 100%. Awesome. Thank, thank you so much no, for having me. No, thank you so much for all of your wisdom and wise words today. Um, it's really been inspiring to, yeah, even just like to see those resources, to have that language, to find out and reach, and but even to feel free to, um, yeah, just connect. Yes. From that level. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we're all different and we're all unique, but it's really important. And I love that you're so open to um, hearing those different perspectives as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nicole. We'll catch you soon at one of your events. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Everything Early Childhood podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. We read them all. (laughs) To catch all the latest from me, your host, Lisa Brown, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at lisabrown underscore platinum ed. Thanks again for listening. Keep making every moment count and I'll see you next time.